take our Bibles this morning and journey back to Romans chapter 11 together. If you're a guest here and you may have forgotten your Bible in the car or at home or you don't have a Bible on your device, we'd like to offer you one to follow along. Um, if you'd like, our ushers are at the back and have a Bible ready to slip up your hand and we'll be glad to assist you and help you follow along this morning. Uh, Brandon, why don't you stand just for a second uh, and face, their, face your family. Um, uh, you guys know that um, what we've taught, what we're seeing here, the more we're a disciple-making culture, one of the unexpected God-intended blessings is, is the Lord continues to raise up our future shepherds right from among us. Brandon's working out in his life right now, whether he's got that pastor-teacher gift or not. So he may be one of your future pastors here. And to that we would say what? Yay! If, yay, right. <laughs> if God would have that. We're going to leave that up to God, though, right? Part of working that out is uh, we try to provide help for these fellows during the summer times that are going through school um, with church internships. Brandon's faithfully helped us here for years in the summers. Uh, we have a church planting network throughout the country that you guys are aware of, Arch Ministries, and Brandon is going from, this is his last Sunday until August with us. Yeah. But he's going to Pastor Jeff Estes Church, Fellowship Baptist Church, just outside of Boise, Idaho. And he's going to be working with their teenagers all summer. And Jeff's got some great plans. So we've had several video conferences with Pastor Jeff and me and Brandon. And uh, Jeff continues to talk to him. And Jeff's going to help us further equip Brandon in understanding potentially his gifting and potentially his ministry here in the future. Okay. So if you see Brandon today, give him a hug. Tell him you'll miss us. Tell him he'll probably miss us and tell him we'll miss, <laughs> we'll, we'll miss him. And uh, we'll keep in touch throughout the summer. So I want to let, uh, let you folks know that. Um, and so thanks, Brandon, for being willing to give up so much time um, in figuring out God's purpose for your life. And uh, we look forward to that. All right? Romans chapter 11. I want to remind our hearts... Again, by considering the early part of chapter 9 and the early part of chapter 10, where we continue to head here in chapter 11. Remember what Paul says, if you'll flip back to chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great, what? I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of who? Now, the brethren in the New Testament is often used in relationship to describing other people who know Jesus, but here he's talking about his unregenerate religious friends and family. His unsaved yet to know Jesus personally Unsaved friends and family. He's talking about the religious Jewish community here. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, there's the qualifier, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of all the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. These are folks that are religious people. They're Israel, politically, 
biologically, but they're not yet Israel spiritually. Because the Christ that is to come to them, or from them, they have not received. They've rejected. And then we spent the rest of chapter 9 encouraging her. How does Paul encourage his own heart? He's in deep grief, he, he encourages his heart by saying, you know, reminding his heart, remember we went through this, right? The Lord saves faithfully. He saves mercifully. And he saves righteously. We're not going to review that. It's an overview of chapter 9. Now look at 10. Brethren, my heart's desire, and we studied that word desire, remember? It's not your typical word for desire, epithumia in the New Testament, all right? But it had other practical ramifications for us and my prayer. So while he's grieving, he's going through these times of guttural grief, longing for his friends and family who are religious but yet to be saved, He's reminding himself God saves faithfully, mercifully, and righteously, but he's also continuing to bolster that desire for them to be saved with prayer. We studied that. To God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, that's Jesus Christ, and seeking to establish their own through good works, religious good works, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. He spends the remainder first third of chapter 10 reminding himself and reminding all of us that religious people just simply misunderstand the righteousness of Christ and the grace of God. They misunderstand everything about it, that it's free. It's the grace of God is unmerited favor. Righteousness of God is in Jesus Christ, and, and once you trust Him and own Him as your Lord and Savior, you no longer have to trust in your religious calisthenics of stand, sit, kneel, be baptized, go to church, give money, do good to your neighbor. Salvation is not of your own good works. It's only of Jesus Christ. One good work on the cross of Jesus Christ. And they misunderstand grace, and they misunderstand righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. And then we further help ourselves as we travel through this grief that's in our heart and this desire that's bolstered by prayer to see our religious loved ones and friends come to know Christ by being those ambassadors for the gospel that he's asked us to be. We studied that in verses 14 to 17, remember? You all are the preachers, not just the professional trained ones. You all God desires to use to be light of the gospel to your religious friends and family. But we realize, too, that though religious friends and family are still offered the opportunity to be saved, you'll find out that your opportunity will go beyond just the religious friends and family. Remember, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just the religious community, in Paul's context, not just the Jewish community. Whatever the religious community is, beyond those religious communities, God has irreligious people. And we're not going to go back over the outline again from the early parts of the book of Romans, as we've already done. But God desires not just religious people to be saved, even though a remnant from them will only be saved. But remember the end of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9. That God is mercifully allowing many irreligious people to come into the fold of God in Christ Jesus. 
And we are the ambassadors. We are the mouthpieces of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to the religious, but to the irreligious. And he concludes chapter 10 by reminding us again of the disposition and the attitude of the religious, but of God's merciful hand that he's holding out to them all the day long. I have tried, I have tried, and he's not going to stop trying. The offer of salvation is still made to the religious. Chapter 11 really is all about the attribute of the mercy of God. God does still mercifully desire to save the religious. Again, Paul's speaking of his own personal testimony, his own context, which would be the Jewish religious context. But we can take practical application for all of our lives in relationship to Paul's life. And last week, remember, we divided up the first 10 verses in, in a three-part outline, and I'll give that outline to you again. Verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, we have to be remembered that God's plan of redemption is first personal. Again, remember, Paul's working his way out of the grief, or at least how to persevere through the guttural grief of those that he's been light to that have yet to receive Christ. We have to keep that in mind. We have to keep the early part of chapter 9 and the early part of chapter 10 in mind as we get to the early part of chapter 11. All this theology that's here is practically applied to us by keeping those two texts in 9 and 10 in our hearts and minds. By the time we get to chapter 11, we're reminded, Paul says, I'm going to continue to personally understand that God still saves individuals. Remember what he said last week. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm a Jewish person. I know God still saves religious people because I was one. Right? You remember his conversion we alluded to in Acts chapter 9. Right? We alluded last week to Philippians chapter 3 and Paul's personal testimony. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. A Jew of all Jews. And yet God mercifully still saved him. He loves to save religious individuals. Remember, we looked at the story, as Paul mentions here. It's an old, old Testament allusion to the, to the life of Elijah. Remember 1 Kings 19? And Elijah's, Elijah's struggling. He wishes for his life to be taken. And the Lord reminds him what? I understand. But I only, not only have you, Elijah, I have given myself 7,000 more men just like you. I have a remnant. I have a remnant. It may not be the majority, but I will always have a faithful few. But the faithful few, the remnant, are composed of individuals. God's plan is per first personal. It's got to start with you understanding the gospel as a formerly religious person, you being born again, and then you being persuaded that you become like Paul now, and you work your way through the grief of people that don't get the message like you've gotten it now about the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. It starts personally. And your agony has, this is very therapeutic for us spiritually, because I know how many of you agonize over your religious friends and family that have yet to come to know Christ. It is agony for you. Why don't they see it, Pastor Tim? Why don't they see it? And some of you, I've given you a half hug and I've said, let's just remember how many years you didn't see it. Right. 
Oh, I know, I know. But why are they so stiff-necked? Why are they so stubborn? Why can't they just see Jesus for who Jesus is? I see him now. Why can't they see him? Just keep praying. Understand, God saved you. He saved you. He's still saving religious people. His arm is still extended all the day long, even though they appear obstinate and stubborn, right? End of chapter 10. But don't forget that God is still saving a religious remnant. His plan is personal, isn't it? Then we said last week, the second part of verse 2 through verse 6, that God's plan is progressing. It's not just personal, it's progressing. We're probably going to spend the majority of our time here, and because of our, our, our opportunity after the service this morning, I don't know that I want to race through the third part of our sermon, but I'll, I'll do my best. But what I want you to absorb from God's word, hopefully this morning, is that God's plan is progressing. And then finally, in the second part of verse 2, through excuse me, verses 7 to 10, that God's plan is permanent. It's personal, it's progressing, and it's permanent. Let's go now to, to chapter 11. Let's remind ourselves of something here. Um, it's personal. He mentions the Old Testament story of Elijah. Verse 3, Lord, they, Lord Elijah said, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I alone am left. Right? That alone syndrome we talked about last week. We do get that. When we've been born again out of religiosity. They're seeking my life. But Paul says here to encourage his own heart and to encourage ours. But what is the divine response to Elijah? While you're in agony, don't forget, the Lord says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. So even though Elijah felt that he was, a left, he, was, he was alone, he alone was left, God says, hang on, Elijah. Your faithfulness is given birth to quite a large remnant, if you will, of faithful people. God intends to save people, and he intends to encourage you and let you know that he intends to build his church through you. Elijah had the influence of a prophet. And through his faithfulness, I really believe this remnant is a reminder to him of his own faithfulness. God intends to progress that which he started. And by the way, when did he start it? Remember, Remember how Paul talks about last week, God foreknew, he foreknew that there would be religious people that would be saved. So God's plan starts in eternity past, it will progress, he's reminding us, even though we're discouraged at times like Elijah, don't be discouraged, if you stay faithful, God will use you to build his church. 
God is always calling a remnant to himself. It is indeed progressing. In your notes, because we don't have time, I want you to go back and just write these down on your own time. Write down these texts again that remind us that God is always calling a religious remnant unto himself. Paul says in chapter 9, verses 6 through 11, that he intended to do this. Chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. 6 to 11, 23 to 24, 27 to 29. Chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. And now again here in chapter 11. God has committed himself to always providing for himself a spiritual core group of people that are light bearers for the gospel, whether it be the dispensation of law, the Old Testament, or this dispensation, the dispensation of grace, which we call the church age. God called faithful people, unfaithful people, unto himself and faith in the Old Testament in unique and particular ways. He's doing the same in our age but he's doing it not just necessarily in unique and particular ways. Jesus said he would build his church, and then he told us how he would do it. How he would do it, you have to go back to chapter 10, verses 10 to 17, 14 to 17. He does it through you. He does it through you. He's always progressing the plan. He always is. So don't be discouraged. And he's using you to do it. Though you feel alone in this world in your effort and agony over lost friends and relatives who just won't accept the simplicity of eternal life in Jesus Christ, he's still using you. Keep praying. Keep reaching. Keep shepherding each other. He's progressing his plan. He can't help himself, if I can say that, but progress his plan. He'll use Paul, he'll use Elijah, he'll use you. You say, well, I'm not an apostle. Paul was. I'm not a prophet. Elijah was. Yes, my friends, but you are priests and kings. May I say that you have a higher, not positionally, but practically, you have been given titles that are more noble You are priests and you are kings. You are the future rulers of this world and the kingdom of Christ yet to come. But for now, for now, your feet are the beautiful feet that take the gospel to religious friends and family and to the irreligious. And we can know since God's plan is certain that he has a certain plan for you to do that. He's put you in your own Jerusalem. Our church is in Mentor. But you live on a street in our area. You work in a particular vocation in our area. You might exercise. You might walk with people at particular venues in our area. Don't think for a second that God isn't intentionally. Remember, this plan's eternal. 
God knows exactly where you are going to be in order to be light for him in any particular day of any particular week, month, or year of your existence. And his intention for you is to be part of him progressing his plan. So we should embrace that. We should pray for that opportunity. And we should plan then to be part of that plan because it's, it's that certain. It's that certain. You, my friends, are the souls that only the grace of God can produce. God has established you as this local church entity in this age, in this dispensation. You, my friends, are the physical and spiritual representation of Christ's holy promise. You all are a reminder of whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many of you were saved out of religious background, regardless of the religion? Would you stand? How many of you were saved out of a religious background? Okay. Right. Just look around. Does God have a plan? Does it include religious people? Formerly religious people? Churchgoers, my friends. People that would say, I grew up in a family that went to church. This was my church who knew a lot about Jesus Christ but never knew him personally. That's who's standing right now. Right. You may be seated. How many of you are formerly irreligious? You had no religious background, but the Lord has saved you. You're among the, the Gentiles, if you will, of the world. Would you stand? No religious background formally. Okay. That's special, isn't it? Amen. You may be seated. How many of you are second, third, or fourth generation Christians, and though you needed Christ, you heard about him early, and you trust him as your Savior? Would you stand? Okay. Good. Now hang on. Hang on. This number is almost equal to the formerly religious number. Right? All right, you may be seated. What has God called all of us to be, though? Pray for those who first stood because they're the ones that have a special agony in their soul for their current unregenerate religious friends and family. You folks, of all the people in the room, are probably most blessed by the study of what Paul's agonizing through in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The irreligious, praise God, you're part of that group that, even though you weren't grown up in a religious environment, you're actually understanding Jesus Christ more easily than even religious people did. It computes with you more quickly. Because you don't have all of the religious dust that you have to clear off of your personal shelves before you can get him. You just hear him and you understand him and you trust him. Praise the Lord for that. Second and third generation believers, and I'm one of them, we have a great strength which also can lead to a greatest weakness. Because we are birthed almost into this understanding of Christ because we are compelled that we were sinners of the greatest kind when we were little 
and we turned and threw ourselves at the mercy of Christ at five, six, seven, eight years old, our tendency is, is to be least burdened for the lost. Because we grew up in the environment of the found. So the application here really is threefold. Paul does not mention in the immediate context those who are saved in the second and third and fourth generation already. All right? Our application is chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, to be sure. For the religious and irreligious, God saved you personally to make you part of his overall plan of progressing the growth of his church. And he saved you intentionally for that purpose. There is someone, as long as the Lord sustains your life, there is at least one for you in this dispensation to spiritually reproduce yourself in. Are you praying for that person? Who is it? What's their name? Maybe they're seated next to you this morning. Who is it? He desires to progress his plan, and he does so through you. So don't stay in your agony long, but over your lack of fruit within the religious group you're trying to pray for and win, don't forget there's probably some irreligious out there while you're grieving over the religious not responding who are ready to respond. And let's pursue them. And let's remember, too, that this remnant is born out of grace, isn't it? Four times in two verses, we see a form of the word grace. Look at verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of religious works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. One author said, the sparing of a remnant is inseparably related to the choice of God. And this choice was made according to his grace. Another author has said, the very fact that God's choice excludes the possibility the very fact that God's choice excludes the possibility of his desertion of that choice. He's compelled of himself. Now we are compelled by his grace to be saved and compelled by the same to go out and to spiritually reproduce ourselves because there will always be a remnant of the faithful in this dispensation. One author said the remnant has its origin, not in the quality of those saved, but in the saving action of God. This is all by his grace, and God has reserved it for himself. He will continue to build his church. And God is progressing his plan one soul at a time by you. How shall they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's you and that's me. And God's plan is permanent. Verses 7 to 10. Let's read these verses. 
and we'll make a few comments and close this morning. Paul asks another question then, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. It's seeking righteousness, but they haven't obtained righteousness because they're seeking it the wrong way. They're seeking it by being good people or seeking it by good works. And while they're doing that, they're they're excluding Christ or they're adding to him. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were what? Hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. How does this apply to us, Pastor Tim, in relationship to God's saving plan being permanent? Let me, just, let me tell you here, as efficiently and as quickly as I can, exactly why these three Old Testament texts are mentioned. What we have here is a mentioning of Deuteronomy 29, okay? I, Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29.4, Isaiah 29.10, and Psalm 69. Both the Deuteronomy text and the Isaiah text are combined here in verse 8. And then Paul pretty clearly makes it understandable where Psalm 69 begins when he says, and David says. Why are these texts mentioned here? Go back with me to verse 16 of chapter 10, real quickly. Speaking again of the religious crowd that just won't trust Christ, because they're trusting in their own way. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by what? Hearing. Religious people hear, don't they? What does it say in verse 18? But I say, surely they have heard, have they? And Paul's answer is what? Oh yeah, indeed they have. They've heard it. Hang on with me here. We're almost done. They've heard it. Look at verse 19 again. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And Paul's answer is, Moses says, yes, they did comprehensively so, and we walked through that together a few weeks back. So they have heard, they did know, and what is Moses saying in Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah saying in Isaiah 29? They're adding more senses to their understanding. In other words, they had heard, they had known. Moses says in his song, you even saw We all know what that means, right? It's particularly in that immediate context in reference to you visually saw my mighty hand work through the plagues on Egypt to cause your release. You were eyewitnesses of a sea being parted for your safe crossing. You have known, you have heard, you have seen. You've seen it. 
Isaiah goes on to report, you also saw and heard the prophets and, and you did not listen to them. What happens to a religious soul? The more they know, the more they hear, the more they see, and the more they reject. The Bible says here two things. They become hard. And they fall into a stupor. Let me explain these two words here. And then we're going to apply this and finish. The word hardened here in verse 7 is the idea of an, the over-calcification of a healed bone that was once broken. If you come up and shake my hand, I broke this hand in a basketball game in high school at one time, and I've got a bump on the top of that bone. It was over-calcified. That's the idea here. This is what happens to religious people. They're influenced. They're affected. Even their senses are aroused to hear and to see and to know who Jesus Christ is. And they still say, eh, I'm all right with Jesus, but I'm all right with Jesus. And don't forget, I'm all right with Jesus. Or there's this option too. No, it's right. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? And the more they don't accept the simplicity of eternal life in Jesus alone, it's more calcium, more calcium. And then he uses the word in verse 8, stupor. The Greek word means to prick or to poke at its root. The idea is if you um, have a callus on your hand or maybe on your feet, if you are a laborer in the workforce or maybe you're an athlete, um, I think moms work really hard. They get lots of calluses too, right? The idea is, is to take a, print, a, a pin and prick it, and you can't feel it, right? You might even be able to drive a pin through that callus and be unaffected. This is the idea. They've been poked. They've been sent into a stupor. But the reality is still this. While they're alive in this dispensation, they still have opportunity to be converted, don't they? So how does that happen? In the Old Testament, and by the way, I think this is good hermeneutic. Our pastors and leaders can tell me later if it's not. Okay, tell me now if it's not, probably, right? Why cite Old Testament texts? in this New Testament context. By his mercy, God could have and desired to use what they had heard and what they had seen to prick their hearts to get them to see Christ, right? Would you agree? Why a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? Why striking a rock and water gushing out of it when he could have just spoken? Why bread from heaven? and poultry from heaven. Why? Did they taste God's goodness? Did they see his omnipotence? Had they heard his message faithfully? Yeah. How does God, think about this, how does God arouse the senses of unbelief in this dispensation through you? Because I would submit to you, 
that once formerly a drunkard, now saved by the grace of Christ. You stand as a more visible miracle of the omnipotence of God than the mere parting of a Red Sea. As a former opioid addict who now surrenders their will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin and you place your faith in Him. And you show up in our culture in Lake County, devastated by this opioid epidemic. And now the temptation's gone. You stand as a more omnipotent, visible representation of the power of God than even a pillar of fire by night that would lead the Israelites through the desert. They see you. They need to hear you. You used to be cuss mouth at work. You're not anymore. What happened to you? I've been watching you. Now they get to what? They get to hear you. Their senses are aroused in this dispensation through what the omnipotence of God in Christ has done through you and is doing through you. You are it. We are it. Praise God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, right? We are savers of life unto life and maybe death unto death, but we are the ambassadors of God in this age. What an honor. What an honor to be a representative of the king of kings regardless of the response of the religious or the irreligious. We're it. We're it. And it's permanently so for us. It's personal. God's progressing it. And my friends, it's permanent. That's the way it functions. Now let's just start praying that we can have a part of this progressing plan as individuals that God has said, this is the way it is. Now please just go do it. Let's go do it. And we'll praise God for the increase he'll give. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Our hearts are overwhelmed with the heart of your spirit through the hand of Paul as he writes to the Roman people. And Lord, it's so simple and so practical. I know in this text we get caught up in the theological milieu of so many things, but practically, Lord, what this text meant to the Roman believers has to mean the same thing to us. And I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will Lead us unto that end. Use our lives, our actions, our words, our feet to be visible, audible representations of the transformation of your grace in our own heart. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, when they see it, when they hear it, when they recognize it, they will come and they will ask and help us, Lord, to be ready to give an answer regarding our faith. Give us a burden for the religious, 
May our desire for them to be saved increase. Is it your desire? Lord, give us a burden to build redemptive relationships in our community with not just the religious, but the irreligious, that they might see the simplicity of life in Christ in us, and they might hear it from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.